the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And good morning. I'm Gary Randall. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's always an honor. Today is Friday, December the 18th, 2020, in the year of our Lord. Today on December 18th, 1865, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution that abolished slavery, as you probably know, it was declared in effect by the Secretary of State. Today in 1917, Congress passed the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, prohibiting, quote, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors. They sent it to the states for ratification, which it was ratified. Today in 1940, Adolf Hitler signed a secret directive ordering uh, preparations for a Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. It was called Operation Barbosa. It was launched in June of 1941. Today, in 1944, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the government's wartime evacuation of people of Japanese descent from the West Coast while at the same time ruling that um, obviously loyal Americans of Japanese ancestry could not continue to be detained. Today in 1957, the shipping port atomic power station in Pennsylvania was the first nuclear plant to generate electricity in the United States. It went online today, 1957. It went out of service in 1982, I think. Today in 2000, the Electoral College cast its ballots with President-elect George W. Bush receiving the expected 271 Al Gore however, received 266. That was one fewer than expected because of a District of Columbia Democrat who'd left her ballot blank because she wanted to protest that the district didn't have representation in Congress. Well, the the Democrats have been talking about this, and Joe Biden has said repeatedly recently, if they can get control of the Senate, Now that they believe without any question they have control of the Oval Office, the presidency, we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. But um, he has said that if they can get control of of George of the Senate by winning those two runoff election seats coming up in January, um, that they are going to work to give statehood or representation to Washington, D.C., and I think Puerto Rico. And they know that they will be far-left senators, and that will give them a, a, um, an edge in, in, the, um, in the Senate. And it, if, they, if they handle it correctly, and I've, I've read the details, um, they can, they'll have a majority in the Senate without really elections in the, in the 50 states, which would be what they were angling for. A lot of things are going to change should these people take control. And believe me, we're a heartbeat away from that. But should they take control of America? But, you know, I, I as we think about that, a lot of you are just sending me notes or, or email or that kind of 
you know, just comments. And so many of you are expressing concern over America and where we are and where we're headed and what things look like. But again and again, the Bible teaches and it affirms that God is in control of all things. He is sovereign over all things, including human history. The Bible says he knows the thoughts of every person on earth. Nothing can happen that God doesn't allow or that he works for the good of the people and his glory. If God were merely loving but not in control of things, it would be a scary universe. But God is in control. I mean, there are so many verses to that effect in the Bible. Because God is in control, we can trust God in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Because God is in control, we can trust him for our future. Because God is in control, we can trust God for our children and our grandchildren. Because God is in control, we can forgive and love even those who have sinned against us, transgressed against us. Because God is in control, we can pray in faith. Because God is in control, we need not fear for our nation. We should be concerned. We should show concern. We should act responsibly and act, not just stand by and say, well, God's in control. It doesn't matter. God's whole plan involves you and me right from the beginning. That's why he created us the way he did so that we could function in the greater plan of God for time and eternity. God is in control. We can trust that he's working all things for our good, or we'll have to tear that page out of the Bible. Because God is in control, we can trust that he will give us grace to go through whatever it is that we have to face in life. Because God is in control, we can give thanks for and rejoice in all things. Because God is in control, we can do all things without grumbling and complaining. I'm not saying we will, but I'm saying we can. Not in our own power, but in the power of God. Because God is in control, we can trust that God will lead and guide us. The Bible is full of scripture that says God will lead you and guide you. If we ask him, and if we're sensitive to the leading of his Holy Spirit. Because God is in control, we can trust with all of our heart that Jesus Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Isaiah, the old prophet of quite some time ago, he wrote in chapter 41, verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is in control. Franklin Graham posted a uh, message on social media this week day before yesterday, I think it was. He said, people have asked if I'm disappointed in the election. When I think about my answer, he said, I have to say honestly that I'm grateful. Grateful to God that for the last four years, he gave us a president who protected our religious liberties. Grateful for a president who defended the lives of the unborn, standing against abortion and the bloody smear that is made on our nation. Grateful for a president who nominated conservative justice judges and justices to the Supreme Court, and he said some other things. Franklin also said he's praying that God will lead President Trump to the next chapter in his life. The president has indicated just 
the last few days what that next chapter might look like. I want to talk to you for a little bit about that. Franklin continued. He continued. He said, I'm grateful for a president who built the strongest economy in 70 years with the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years before the pandemic. He said, I'm grateful for a president who strengthened and supported our military, grateful for a president who stood against the swamp and corruption in Washington, grateful for a president who supported law and order and defended our police. Franklin said, I'm grateful for a president and a vice president who recognized the importance of prayer and were not ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. And Franklin said, I'm thankful for the president who stood against the secularists who wanted to take Christ out of Christmas and that he brought back the greedy Merry Christmas. And Franklin said it's unfortunate that so many people got confused and made the election about personalities rather than policies of the candidates. That happened. There are numbers as high as 17% of people, Democrats, who voted for Biden, who are now saying and have said over the last month or so, had they known then what they know now about the Biden family and their entanglement with China, Russia, and other really (laughs) horrible countries, I mean, countries that really hate America, and their entanglement with them financially and Hunter Biden through Hunter Biden. And I don't think there are many people in America that don't believe that Joe was at least, you know, standing in the shadows. He was involved. He knew what was going on. He lied to the American public and said, oh, I don't know what, what, what my son is doing. And that was a year ago. He said, I have no idea. We never discuss it. And then all these pictures start showing up with he and Hunter with these guys that he doesn't know anything about. They're playing golf. And on and on it goes. You know most of that if you listen to this program, because we've talked about it, and others have as well. But President Trump, President Trump may have a little bit different next phase of his life in mind than some. Franklin also said that he believes President Trump will be remembered as one of the greatest presidents of all time. I agree with all of that. But according to the to the president himself and the people close to him, his lawyers in particular, they have said that the next chapter in his life includes the first week of January, the new year. The president has talked about it, and he's not discouraged others from talking about it and quoting him about another possible run for president in 2024. He's not close to that at all, he said, and he said it often. Would he do that? Should he ultimately lose this election? Who knows? I don't know if he knows for sure, but he's not close to it. While most are accepting the vote of the electors of the Electoral College, President Trump is not accepting it. Neither are his lawyers. And the reason that I bring this up today, neither is the New York Times and some of the big boys on the left in the media. These people are enablers of the Barack Obamas, the Hillary Clintons, even the Joe Bidens. And I think everybody knows that Joe Biden personally and and his health and his cognitive skills, I mean, how can he make it through four years as president? I mean, I, I don't think anybody thinks really that he will, including those closest to him. 
Perhaps those closest to him are counting on the fact that he won't so they can install Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and all that. You know who the crew is. They were all running for president. Well, they're all grasping for a key to the Oval Office now. But in a featured article this week, the New York Times published with a twinge of anxiety. They asked this question, can Congress overturn the Electoral College results? Why would they say this? I'll tell you why. They quickly answer their own question. Their first answer is, probably not. While stressing the probably not, the Times goes into a rather long, kind of a missive, almost like a a sermon, about why they believe probably not. The Times notes that this election could look different because, I'm quoting the Times, some of the president's most strident supporters are threatening to transform it into a messy last stand by objecting to the results of the Electoral College. The New York Times continues, They are all but certain to fail, but not before a potentially divisive spectacle on the floor of the House. But, (laughs) the Times says, they finally get to this, and it's way down deep into this article, but it's a feature article. But, the Times says, the Constitution, I'm quoting them now, the Constitution leaves it up to Congress to make the final call shortly before Inauguration Day. Article 2, Section 1, the New York Times says, says the President of the Senate shall in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives open the certificates and the votes shall be counted. To that end, the time gives you this little description. On January 6, again I'm quoting the New York Times this week, on January 6, envelopes containing certificates showing the electoral results from all 50 states will be carried into the House chamber inside two bound mahogany boxes that date from the 19th century. Representatives of the newly sworn-in House and Senate, called tellers for the occasion, will pull them out one by one to determine whether each, and they're quoting from the Constitution now, each seems to be regular in form and authentic. And the New York Times continues, present them to the President of the Senate. In this case, Mr. Pence. Vice President Pence, for inspection and approval. At this point, any member of the chamber may submit an objection. This is, I'm not quoting, it's end of quote. At this point, any member of the, of the chamber can submit an objection. That would include the hundreds of sworn statements by citizens working on the election that are eyewitnesses to fraud. That would include the Dominion voting machines, the errors, and all of this stuff. I mean, there's just mountainous, mountainous amounts of evidence that there was fraud and it was laced through this election. I don't know to what degree. I mean, they won't let us know. They keep covering it up. But there was fraud. There's no question. I would say that if Trump won. If I, w- if I had seen what I've seen, and I'm not that smart, but, man, you look at this stuff and you go, of course there was, I mean, suitcases being rolled in in the middle of the night hid under tables till everybody is sent home, say, we'll, we'll resume this tomorrow, and then they resume as soon as these people are gone. And I mean, the stories are endless. I mean, I wouldn't even believe what I know if I didn't, didn't know for sure. But at this point, when these electoral 
votes are brought out of these old boxes. It's a tradition and placed before the the chambers, both chambers and the vice president of the United States. There could be an objection. If there is no second to the objection, it simply is seen as a statement of protest or whatever, and that has happened a few times in history. However, the objection holds a great deal of weight if there is a cosigner by at least one member of each chamber to the objection. Otherwise, they move on to formalize and certify the vote. In this case, Joe Biden would be president of the United States. But if there is at least one cosigner from each chamber, the process immediately stops. This is per our Constitution. Our Constitution says the lawmakers can discuss and debate the issue for up to two hours. They would then vote whether or not to throw out the state's votes under question by the objection. In other words, if I say you were the senator or I were, we go in or the congressman, we would or congressperson, we would say, I object to these, these three states and, and here's why and blah, blah, blah. So if it got to that point and there were other co-signers, at least two, one from each chamber, uh, then it would go to, to a debate for two hours. Then they would look at what I had presented for the reason for my objection, which is pretty well known now by all who are paying attention. So the Constitution gives gives a two-hour window to discuss it. Then, then they make the decision whether to throw out the state's votes under question by the objection. Here's where the New York Times assures its readers, <clears throat> it's no longer news, folks. It's someone with a, an agenda. It's not a newspaper. I have an agenda. I wouldn't do this radio program if I didn't. <clears throat> I have a very strong agenda, but I don't claim to be a newspaper or a news program. We talk about what's in the news, and we do so from a very biased point of view. I'm biased from a biblical worldview, and that's why we do what we do. We don't claim to be a newspaper or a news organization because we're not. We talk about the news from a biblical perspective. So I'm biased. So is the New York Times, but they deny that they are, and so all of the newspapers do, and the news organizations. So anyway, at this point in this article, <clears throat> the Times assures its readers, this is very rare, they say. It only happened during the Reconstruction uh, era with Lincoln. What adds weight to this matter is that Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama, he says he will object on January 6th. He's going to ask that the electoral votes from five states, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Georgia, and Wisconsin, be thrown out because there is such widespread, well-documented fraud. The Times says, New York Times, they say there are no other lawmakers who are planning to join him. But that's not true. And I think they know that. But it doesn't matter if they know it or not. It's not true. Senator Rand Paul has publicly said that he isn't ruling out an objection to electoral votes during the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. Rand Paul said, in fact, he told 
CNN. He said, we're looking at all the legal stuff that's happening with the legal cases, and we'll make our decision after we've seen all the legal challenges. What the New York Times also isn't saying is that Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican from Wisconsin, he recently told reporters that he's leaving the option open as well. Johnson is the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. This week, he said, he said, I am considering it very seriously. Congressional rules enable a U.S. representative and a senator to join together to file an objection to the electoral votes. Mo Brooks, also Representative-elect Barry Moore, from a Republican from Alabama, and Representative-elect Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican from Georgia. They have both said they fully plan to file objections. Well, we'll see what happens. But that is, if we're looking for the next chapter in President Trump's life, that is the next chapter. How will it come out? I don't know. There's a great deal of opposition to it, surprisingly, to me at least, and very disappointing. The um, <laughs> the Senate and Mitch McConnell is pressing not to do this. And that's profoundly disappointing to me. I know they're trying to have a little class in their minds and just let it happen and gear up for 2024. But I'm wondering why would they do this? It was leaked out that a they had a, a meeting here recently, just within the last few days. It was a closed-door meeting, the Senate, with the Republican. And, and, and in truth, i got to tell you, Mitch McConnell has made some really good decisions in my mind, and I'm just one citizen out here. I mean, I'm nobody. But in my mind, he's made some pretty good decisions. And I wasn't real warm on him, I mean, honestly, just as one citizen out here. I, I, I felt like he was more of a player than a, than a doer, than a, you know, a real... I, I didn't feel he took a real strong stand often, most of the time. But I've seen him do that, particularly where the justices on the Supreme Court were concerned. And I mentioned that on this program, but in, in fairness, he did. I think he did step up. But boy, on this thing, I think he's dropping the ball. I think he just doesn't want to get into something that will look kind of cheap and embarrassing to his colleagues. That I could be wrong, but that's what I think. But for whatever reason, he's telling the, the, the guys in the Senate and the, and the women not to, not to do this, not to go down that trail. But it's available, and some of them are saying they're going to do it anyway. So there is tension against these Republicans. And my concern is, as we look at this and see what happens, this next chapter of Trump's life, whatever follows this, you know, we'll see. But the Times completely leaves out of their article, unless it's been updated today, is that the presidential election goes to Congress. The Republicans, not the Democrats, hold the majority vote according to the rules of the Constitution. And this is important. And this is why I don't understand why McConnell is taking the position he's taking. But the vote under those conditions would be one vote per senator. This is per our Constitution. It would be one vote per senator, with the vice president being the deciding vote if the Senate uh, needed 
a deciding vote. In other words, if there was a tie. In the House of Representatives, though, it's one vote per delegation, per state. I know the Democrats have the, have the majority in the House of Representatives. And when they vote, they have the majority vote. I mean, we know that. The Republicans made some ground on that, and several were elected, and, and that majority has been diminished somewhat, but they still have the majority. But under these circumstances, on these electoral votes that I've just outlined here per the Constitution— if the house when if it came to a vote the house of representatives have one vote per delegation per state not per house member when that is in effect and it would be per the constitution the republicans have 30 delegation votes compared to the democrats 20 delegation votes in the house under this constitutional directive should this scenario run true, Trump would be reelected by Congress if the Republicans stood with him. And I don't think that's being clearly, maybe it is, but I'm not seeing anyone clearly defining that. But I felt like those of you who listen to this program, you should know that. I don't claim to be a constitutional scholar or a lawyer. I'm not. But, I mean, this is pretty basic stuff. It's in the Constitution. And the the media is is running from this, you know, like a hornet's nest, because they they really don't want the public to be that informed because they might call their senators and their congresspeople and encourage them to get involved in this. Why Mitch McConnell is telling the senators to stay out of it, I don't know, but he is. But I can almost guarantee you that if you talk to one of your elected officials, federal elected officials in the House of Representatives or the Senate, the conversation back to you, a Republican, the conversation back to you as to why they didn't participate and take a stand if they don't, and they, and they probably won't, most will not, will probably be something along the lines of, well, it's complicated, and you don't understand. Well, you know, it's time, even some of our favorite little, you know, people that come home and say, I'm fighting for you and all this kind of thing, and raise a lot of money and get votes, and then they head back to Washington, D.C., where they where their real life is, honestly. And I, I don't want to sound cynical, but, I mean, let's get real. They go back there, and they, they get, you know, in the flow, and they go with the stream. It is a swamp, but it's also a river, and they just jump in, and they go where it takes them, where the leadership takes them. They're not fighting for you most of the time. Maybe they want to be, but they're not. So these are the kinds of things that we're looking at. And they usually come back around, as I said, in their explanation is that, well, it's very complicated. And basically, you wouldn't understand. That's why you elect me and so on. But we got to get to the bottom of this. Don't be afraid to confront or ask some of your, even your favorite elected officials, why they're not, why they're not supporting this. Because the leadership, particularly McConnell, is saying, don't do it. So we'll see what happens. But that's what Trump's future looks like in the near future. We'll watch this very closely. Thank you for your support. It means a great deal to me and to our budget. We wouldn't be here without you. Our address is Box 399, Bellevue, Washington, 98009. Box 399, Bellevue, 98009. Or you can go to our website, faithandfreedom.us. And 
and contribute online. Thanks for being with us today, and thank you for your support, all of your kind notes. Have a great day and a great weekend.